Welcome to the Startup Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Joyce Franklin. If you work at a startup or a company with a startup attitude, this podcast is for you. Each week, we talk to an expert guest about financial success and lessons learned on the journey to long-term security. Today's guest, Paul Allen, has been a founder or co-founder of seven companies, four of which have had liquidity events. He's also been an advisor or mentor at eight organizations. At Paul's current startup, NextBite, there have been seven funding rounds totaling over $150 million, including a Series C round raised in October 2020 from the SoftBank Vision Fund. Paul, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Tell me about your current company and your role in it. Sure. My current company is called NextBite. We started NextBite uh, as, as Ordermark. That was the name of the business in 2017. And we're in the business of helping restaurants be more successful. NextBite in particular develops virtual restaurant brands. For those of your listeners not familiar with that term, those are brands that are only available through delivery services, uh, either Uber Eats or DoorDash or Grubhub and the like, or directly delivered by the restaurant, as opposed to on-premise dining where you go and sit in in, an actual restaurant. So we designed these special virtual uh, restaurant brands. We have about 16 of them right now. And then we work with existing restaurants that have excess capacity in their kitchens to prepare food for our brands. We pay them to do that. And it's a way for the restaurants to make substantial incremental revenue using their assets that they are already paying for, including equipment and, and rent and staffing. When you hear that sound, it means I'm jumping in to provide some additional context that did not come up in the interview with Paul. Believe it or not, I used to be in the restaurant and nightclub business. Before I became a CPA and financial planner, I started a punkish Washington, D.C. nightclub in the late 80s. My partner and I did this at restaurants that served business lunches and sat empty during the evenings. So we brought in DJs and bands and filled the restaurants with lively energy and people who spent money on booze. But virtual restaurants, also known as ghost kitchens, don't have to think about any of that. They're all about the food. Paul, how did you come up with that idea? Well, I have co-founders, so it was a team effort. We originally started uh, the business four years ago as Ordermark. And what Ordermark does is develop software and hardware to simplify online ordering for restaurants. Um, So we were already in the business of helping restaurants to make more revenue. And our, our system, the Ordermark system, basically takes orders from the major delivery services and a lot of the minor delivery services. And it makes sense of those orders in a way that allows us to print them out of a single printer. And we work with over 5,000 restaurants around the country, uh, some overseas as well. And our mission really is to help restaurants adapt to changing consumer behavior. So um, that first product that we, we developed for Ordermark really was to help restaurants adapt to the fact that consumers 
want to order food from their uh, mobile devices. And so, you know, we began to think about other ways that we could help restaurants uh, make more revenue. It became clear to us that there was an opportunity in developing interesting brands that consumers want to order and then providing the technology and the training that's needed in order to make those brands successful and the marketing as well. So we started NextBite in 2018 as an experiment, as a project, a side project, and began to incubate it um, and then really began uh, to grow the business in um, 2020 aggressively. One of your co-founders at NextBite is Alex Cantor, who seems to be the face of the company. How did you two start working together? Yeah, no, Alex is definitely the face of the company. He's our CEO. His family has owned a restaurant in Los Angeles called Cantor's Deli for uh, nearly 90 years. It's kind of an institution in Los Angeles and well-known around the world. Alex and I met just over four years ago through a mutual co-founder. We began all together, working together at a distance. At the time, the other co-founders were living in Los Angeles and I was living in Colorado. And then after, I think about a year, uh, we had already raised some money and we're growing. We had revenue customers and um, we decided to apply to Techstars in, in Boulder, Colorado. Because I lived here and because of the reputation of the program, uh, we felt that it would be good for the business and it turned out to be tremendous for the business. Techstars is a startup accelerator which invests in very small companies and helps them build their businesses. Other alumni from the Techstars program include Plated, SendGrid, and SketchFab. These days, Paul is also a mentor at Techstars, which we talk about a bit later in the interview. Alex and I met that way. Uh, we met initially through a co-founder, and it's been a very complimentary relationship. I tend to be more inwardly focused on the operations of the business, and he is involved in the operations, but uh, is more focused on external things and partnerships and sales and uh, investor relations. And, you know, he really brings that restaurant pedigree and uh, the knowledge of the restaurant industry. Um, and it's a great relationship. Great. How did your prior roles lead you to what you're doing? I can say that I didn't have a burning passion for the restaurant industry when we started the company. I had, uh, like many people, worked in restaurants when I was younger and enjoyed it. I always thought it was exciting work. I love food. I love to cook. I like the fact that we're touching the lives of tens of thousands of people every day and improving their lives and their businesses. Uh, the fact that we're moving the needle and helping restaurants make more revenue and that those restaurants can employ people, use that revenue to feed their families, that's rewarding to me. Although I've spent the better part of the last 25 years working in tech and mostly with startups and early stage startups, it's an eclectic background. I've also done some work in economic development, work with the state of Connecticut, the state of Ohio, been involved in venture funds and accelerators and starting those programs. And the variety of the work that I've done has prepared me for my, my current role with this business, which has required both being very entrepreneurial to build the business, 
like any startup, and I consider us to be very much a startup still, you know, we have to constantly be innovating and thinking about what's next. And uh, that's entrepreneurial, you know, right brain activity. Let's talk about that entrepreneurial mindset. In my book, Startup Wealth, I wrote about the common challenges founders face when they're laying the foundation of their company in what I call phase one. This phase can last anywhere from two to 40 years. The challenges can range from quality of life issues such as loneliness to financial risks such as taking a below market salary and funneling all resources into the company. Here are three tips for your personal finances in the early days of your startup. One, prepare a personal cash flow projection to understand the commitment you'll make to the startup. This is crucial if you have a family. Two, prepare an inventory of your stock, options, and other equity awards, including the vesting schedules. Three, consider making an 83B election on unvested stock options or restricted stock if your company allows it and there's a low cost to exercise or buy the shares. Be sure to determine how much cash you'll need for both the exercise and the tax bill. NextBite and its competitors often partner with celebrities who can put their names on a virtual restaurant and market it to their fans around the world. Paul, will you talk about your celebrity brands and how that relationship works? We have several celebrity back brands in the works. We have two that are, have already been launched. Um, one of them is called Hotbox by Wiz, which is uh, Wiz Khalifa. And the other one is Lopez Tacos, with George Lopez. All of our brands are heavily focused on the quality of the food and the ingredients. And we train our partners to prepare the food correctly. And then we monitor the quality of the food that they're preparing. Uh, that's very, very important to us that the, the actual finished product and the consumer experience is excellent. And we have, um, we actually, I misstated earlier, 16 brands. We have 17 brands. 15 of those are what we refer to as house brands. And they don't have any celebrity affiliation. They include brands like Grilled Cheese Society and Outlaw Burger. We have several Wings brands and Mac and Cheese brands. And then um, the two celebrity brands that I mentioned. Let's talk about the entrepreneur's wheel of life. Listeners can find this in the show notes or at www.jlfwealth.com. Paul, you've lived through all phases. Phase one, laying the foundation of your company. This could last two to 40 years. Phase two is when you're really ramping up and it's a pre-transition phase. This lasts zero to 24 months as you approach a liquidity event. And then the event happens, which could be an IPO, acquisition, or merger. Finally, phase three is realizing the dream. From my research, talking to over 65 people for my two books, it seems like entrepreneurs always go back to phase one after they complete phase three. So it's a wheel, a cycle. Can you tell me what it was like in each phase from a personal perspective? Yeah, boy, great question. The first phase is probably where most entrepreneurs spend most of their time. When I was younger and before I had a family, I think that that phase ends up feeling, you can feel very anxious because you're comparing yourself with others more than as you get older and you have more going on in your life. I think you just naturally 
tend to get more balanced. But early on and in that phase, uh, it can be very unsettling. You have a lot to prove. And also when you're, you're younger, you have generally you know, fewer relationships that you can tap into. You're more reliant on goodwill of people to help you get further along faster. Interestingly, I think, you know, that's a, an area where accelerators have played a role and, and can play a powerful role um, at that very early stage. This next phase, I think, assumes some level of success or growth. Certainly surrounding yourself with the right people, the right co-founders and early team members is important in the first phase. Phase two is where you really start to see, I think, the dividends from having complementary skill sets. It's even more important to, if you don't already understand what your strengths and weaknesses are, to go deep and, and understand that, do that work, um, and also understand the strengths and weaknesses of your co-founders and the people that you have on your team. You know, we subscribe to a, a framework here at Ordermark called EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. And, you know, they talk a lot about the right butts in the right seats. And um, I think, you know, this, this phase two is, you know, really about leveraging the talent and people's respective strengths. And in order to do that, you really have to know what your own strengths are. Is that something you figured out from self-reflection or did you have a coach or a co-founder that expressed these things to you? You know, at different points in my career, I've been exposed to different coaches and practices for assessing my strengths. We've had a coach on staff with Ordermark for the last three years. Going through Techstars, uh, we work with a number of different coaches. So, you know, I think you can do some of the work yourself. I think some of it's self-evident, you know. Uh, if you asked me to do someone's taxes, I would probably curl up in a ball, and uh, including my own. I just know intrinsically it's not something that uh, I enjoy doing. Uh, nor that I'm particularly good at doing. So I think you, you develop that self-awareness over time. But when you work, when you have the opportunity to work with a coach, it's also working with uh, some of your peers uh, and teammates. Then you benefit not only from, you know, the insights that you gain in working with the coach, but also different perspectives that they can bring that other people share with them. I know for Ordermark, that's really been enormously helpful as we've grown and gone through periods of stress and challenges with the business to have that steady influence of the coach working uh, at, a, at a minimum with the senior leadership team has been really valuable. By my count, you've gone through at least three liquidity events. Tell me about what you were thinking and feeling as you were going through them. This is a, an end goal for most entrepreneurs. The, the seeds for this are set much earlier on than stage three. For me, psychologically, uh, I'm just not the kind of person who is able to stay present in the earlier stages and at the same time anticipate and talk about a liquidity event and exiting. I think that it's a challenging thing to do um, and also maintain or build the kind of team that you want to have, that you want to build that's focused on creating value for customers. And while it's important work that needs to go into planning a liquidity event, 
and ultimately an exit perhaps from the business. I think it's at odds to some extent with the work that you need to do to, to focus on the actual business and, and creating value for yourself and for your investors and most importantly for your customers. It can be challenging to keep the team focused on building the company and not the share price or the valuation. Can you talk about that? How do you keep the team focused in phases one and two on building the product? You know, nobody expects to go public after a year. So expecting the team and measuring the team against results, you know, that occur on a quarterly basis is expected early on. And, and so in that sense, it's, I think it's fairly straightforward to set up the sort of incentives and targets, you know, that you need to set up in order to build value for end customers during the earlier phases. The incentives and targets Paul is referring to is one of the components of the framework he mentioned before, the entrepreneur's operating system. If you're interested in learning more about the EOS, I'd recommend the book Traction by Gina Wickman and the website eosworldwide.com. I think a lot depends on who you recruit and who you seek to join your, your company and then the sort of culture that you establish at the start. I had the opportunity to work with a company called Quicken Loans for several years and I learned the value of uh, culture there. And it was kind of late in my career. Um, I had never worked anywhere quite like uh, Quicken Loans and they have a very unique culture they teach their culture to all new hires and they promote the culture internally in ways that I'd never seen done before, even working with, you know, very large, successful businesses. I just never encountered it. So when we started OrderMark, one of the first things we did was to write down all of our values. And uh, some of them we borrowed from Quicken Loans and some we borrowed from other companies that we'd worked with. But I think that that's really important to do early on and something that a lot of companies, most companies, uh, most startups don't live long enough to even create their values and write them down. And if you don't do that work, you can't expect people that join your company to understand what you stand for and what your business stands for with regards to creating value for customers, um, what the expectations are for how you treat one another inside the business. I just think it's incredibly important to do that early on. Let's fast forward to a later stage in the entrepreneur's wheel of life. Talk about your experience transitioning from phase three, realizing the dream, back to phase one, laying the foundation for a new venture. Boy, it's exhausting. I mean, it's fun. I think that's why you see people uh, become serial entrepreneurs because it's, it's certainly if you, if you have the DNA for it, it's much more exciting and rewarding than working for a large company, in my experience. And, and I think the reason that you see uh, entrepreneurs go from an exit to starting something new is because they want to regain that, that feeling of excitement and uh, learning new things that comes with, with starting a new business. I know for myself, moving from phase three to phase one, if you look at my career path, those periods were marked by segues or departures to doing slightly different work. I mentioned economic development. It's work that I am, I've enjoyed doing. You know, I think you have to find ways to either 
restore yourself throughout while you're involved in, in building a company, um, or you have to take breaks. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to have a lucrative exit, then you have an opportunity to do that. How did you do that? How did you restore yourself either after the event or throughout? I live in Colorado. It's beautiful here. So I try and get out every day and walk. I'm not working with a coach right now, but at times where I have been more stressed in our work, um, I found that beneficial to have a coach to talk to. Enormously beneficial. I also find it beneficial to, there's certain colleagues. I I work with a, a few people that I've known for you know, a dozen years and we know each other well and I find talking to them just in the course of the workday uh, is restorative and, and helps to bring perspective. I talk to my co-founders and uh, I think as the company grows more and more, it's the co-founder, it's board relationships that I lean on more than anything because there's very few people who understand the history and where we've been and the challenges that we face and and when it comes to making difficult decisions, you know, you often don't want to do it alone, particularly when it's going to impact someone else's career or job. And it's helpful to have a sounding board. And a lot of the stress, I think, comes from, you know, the fact that we're, we're heading up to several hundred employees. And uh, it's a, if, you know, you feel the weight of the responsibility, not just to help make sure that uh, your direct reports have what they need to be successful, but that the company overall is making the right decisions, you know, for the long-term security of everybody that works here. Paul, what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self if you were just starting out in your career? I don't know that I would have done anything fundamentally different, but I think I probably would have enjoyed the ride a bit more like been uh, less worried or stressed about things that were out of my control. One of the things that I try to do, I've tried to do for the last several years in conversations is to separate what's in our control from what's not in our control. And when you're early on in the startup, you benefit from kind of taking the weight of the world on your shoulders because you're trying to bend reality to what you want. A lot of the stress that I I brought on myself in my career in the past has been a result of kind of not thinking clearly about things in my control and out of my control and focusing on the ones that I can control and really not worrying much about the other ones because all that worry and anxiety doesn't really benefit me or anyone around me. You've been involved in angel investing for over two decades. What advice do you have for people who want to angel invest? Angel investing and venture is incredibly popular. When I started out 25 years ago, angel investing was not even a thing that people talked about. It occurred, but it was not something that anybody talked about. There weren't angel groups. There was one called Band of Angels. So I guess my advice would be to really consider why it is that you want to angel invest and be involved in that class of investing that is so risky and unlikely to provide positive returns and uh, explore whether there are alternatives that um, may be a better fit for your risk profile. Do you think that people should have a certain amount in a nest egg before they start angel investing? And what dollar amount or percentage do you think that should be? I guess we're living in an era right now where 
laws have adapted to accommodate non-accredited investors placing angel investments. And uh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. On the one hand, I'm comfortable with it because I think it's a great thing for entrepreneurs to be able to have more options and access to capital. On the other hand, I don't think it's a great idea for somebody who, you know, has $50,000 in assets to be placing, you know, three or four small angel bets, you know, in a quarter of their savings in highly risky investments like that. So is it common for someone who has had a liquidity event, whether they're an employee or a founder to want to angel invest? I don't know what the percentage of successful entrepreneurs uh, engaging in angel investing is, but I do think that you're right, that it's a fairly high percentage. And I think that it's, that's a good thing for entrepreneurs. It's something that we should encourage. I think there's a big difference between a successful entrepreneur having an exit and getting involved in supporting other entrepreneurs and an employee of a fast growing company that has is participates in a successful exit uh, has not been hands-on as an entrepreneur building that company, getting involved in angel investing. I think there's a world of difference. I've been fortunate enough to work with quite a few successful angel investors, but they are few and far between what you find are far more individuals who have very little value add, but have some cash to put into a business. It's just a very different thing. You are a mentor at Techstars. Talk about what that is and how have you helped entrepreneurs achieve success? I started two accelerators in the Midwest before we moved to Colorado. So my, my work with the entrepreneurs was more extensive in both of those accelerators. Um, my work with Techstars um, I'm involved uh, now with three of them, one in South Denver called Techstars Western Union, which is a fintech accelerator, another one in Minneapolis, which is uh, Farm to Table, uh, which is food tech, and a third one in Tel Aviv. And my involvement with uh, Tel Aviv and um, Farm to Table have just started. And Techstars, for those that are unfamiliar is similar to 500 Startups and Y Combinator. Techstars is, is one of the granddaddies of accelerators uh, with a phenomenal reputation. I think they have close to 40 programs that they run around the world. Um, many of them are vertically focused. As I said, I, I started two accelerators in Cleveland, Ohio, one that was backed by Quicken Loans, its founder, Dan Gilbert. And as far as examples go of companies that I've helped, you know, I think that one of the things that we would coach founders often during the accelerator is that there's tremendous value in the relationships that you build with mentors. They can open doors for you, which can lead to sales and revenue, traction or funding. And so it's, it's really important to leverage those relationships. And sometimes just the mere fact that you're surrounding yourself with lots of advisors and people providing input can be disorienting and make it difficult uh, to act confidently on your decisions. But at the end of the day, uh, that is, I think, the most important responsibility that founders have to, to sift through all this great input, but then make, make the best decision that they can. So living through the growth at your current company and living through wild growth at other companies what personal financial lessons do you wish you knew sooner? 
there's two. One is if you're like me and you don't enjoy thinking about doing your own taxes, you don't need an accountant, you need a tax specialist. And you need somebody that can really guide you. And that guidance needs to be early and often. And I think that that's true, not for individual, just for individuals, but for companies as well. And then I think just saving for retirement is something that we all wish we started earlier and and did a better job with. When you're an entrepreneur, you're often bouncing in and out of companies. And so having the discipline to save for retirement is something that I think you need to focus on and get advice if you need. Companies don't always do a great job of providing that guidance and advice, but it's important and it's important to start early. Check with your network to find a good tax advisor early on. This person should be familiar with equity awards and the personal financial strategies that are so important in the first few years working in a startup or a more mature company. This includes strategies such as early exercising options, participating in the Employee Stock Purchase Plan, also known as the ESPP, and for a publicly traded company, setting up a 10B51 plan to sell stock during blackout periods. Thank you, Paul, for coming on Startup Wealth today. You can find Paul's company at nextbite.io, and you can find Paul on Twitter at I am Paul Allen. Thanks for listening to Startup Wealth. Today's show was produced by Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Original theme music by Philip Reynolds Price. To learn more about J.L. Franklin Wealth Planning and how we can help you protect your wealth, mitigate taxes, care for your family, and pursue your dreams, visit jlfwealth.com. We are a growing firm. If you are an experienced advisor who subscribes to our approach and wants to grow with us, please get in touch. If you like the show and want more, please rate and review Startup Wealth in your favorite podcast app. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should not be construed as specific investment, legal, tax, or financial planning advice. Please consult with your professional advisor before taking any action based on the content discussed.